Dear Lord, I uh, thank you for allowing us to be able to gather together this morning for people to remain safe on their way here. And I pray for those at home that they're able to have a wonderful time of worship. I pray, Lord, uh, for CareNet that you continue to use them as a light to push back the darkness, that you use them as a ministry to not only help those young lives, but also the mothers and the fathers that are trying to process these decisions. And thank you for their ministry and coming alongside of those families. I pray, Lord, as we spend time in your word this morning that you just uh, reveal your truth in this text and uh, convict us with it and allow it to be encouraging and challenging for us so that we can go out into our communities and share the gospel. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, as many of you already know, that we're covering in, a, in our series, uh, Worship, Grow, and Go as a House of Prayer, which is our church's mission statement, which is really great. And two weeks ago, Brent covered uh, worship, and then uh, Lake last week covered grow, and I have the privilege of covering go. And sometimes when we talk about go, we don't think about ourselves going, but sometimes we think about it as us supporting someone. Like we might say, go Tigers, or something like that, and it's us supporting a team, cheering them on, encouraging them along the way. And sometimes that's how we might approach our faith or sharing the gospel. We will go, we'll tell people to go, we'll cheer them on as they go to the mission field. And our church does a fantastic, wonderful job at supporting global missions. But sometimes we forget that we are also called to go and share the gospel locally. And one of the places where we see this most clearly is in Luke's version of the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So notice those first three locations we're all within 77 miles of Galilee where Jesus is sharing this information with the disciples. It's very local, right? That's like us being commanded to share the gospel in Southfield, Metro Detroit, and going all the way out to Lansing, right? The Great Commission starts at a smaller scale. It started locally and then went out. And we know that not all of us are called to go to the end of the earth, but we all have the responsibility in our lives to reach those in our communities, in our friend groups, in our families to share the gospel. And that can be very intimidating. But I want you all to look with me at Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. And as we turn there, we'll see that sharing the gospel is not just one part of the Christian life. It's comprehensive. It involves every aspect of us. It, it involves our entire lives because our entire lives are our testimony. And if you're using the Bible in front of you, you can find it on 998 in some of them. I'm not sure of the newer updated ones where they're at, but we're in Titus chapter 3. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So let's stop there. Paul, we know, is writing to Titus. And Titus is on the island of Crete where he has the responsibility currently of ministering to the churches that were likely established by Paul on his third missionary journey. And throughout the letter, we see that Paul is instructing Titus on how to bring order to those churches by putting elders in place and overseers and, and learning how to teach the gospel clearly as they're trying to push back false teaching that's running rampant on the island of Crete. And part of that also includes the people of Crete living gospel-focused lives. And we see in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul's instruction to Titus is to remind them of how they are to live. Notice that it's remind them how they ought to behave. This isn't new information for them. They already knew this stuff. This was already aware to them. I'm sure they were probably already saying, like, we know this stuff. And sometimes we fall into that same posture. We say, I already know this, and we can kind of tune out sometimes to certain messages, but we need to be reminded frequently because sometimes we get blind spots in our lives and the Holy Spirit uses scripture to reveal those blind spots and help us become better followers of Christ. And we see in these first three verses that Paul is bringing to light the gravity, the weight, the impact of our actions, which is that our acts testify of God's character. Our acts testify, they speak to God's character, whether that is his mercy, his love, his patience, his righteousness, his holiness. And we see that the very first action in verse 1 is to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, implying being obedient to them. And while the island of Crete was Greek, right, they were not Roman. And when the Romans came and they took over Crete along with the rest of the Mediterranean, the, there was an anti-Roman sentiment that was on the island. People were not happy with being oppressed and controlled by a foreign power. And we see that it's likely that that was taking place in the church as well because Paul is addressing it and instructing them on how they are to behave with the government that's over them. How does submission to authorities share the gospel? How, how does that show or reveal the character of who God is? Well, as, as we've seen or read in Romans, another letter of Paul's, we see that the governing authorities are actually put in place by God. Therefore, right, we submit and we obey those authorities as long as their laws do not conflict with the law of Scripture and God's laws. And if that's the case, then it should change our posture. It should change our attitude toward politics. And it should change how we live in comparison to the rest of the world when it comes to those topics. Now, there was a theologian at the end of the second century into the third century named Tertullian. 
And Tertullian wrote to the proconsul of Africa, the province of Africa, when it was over Roman rule. That's where he lived in Carthage. And he wrote to the proconsul of Africa that Christians were actually beneficial to their society. He wrote this. He said, a Christian is enemy to none, least of all to the emperor of Rome, for he knows that he is to be appointed by God, and that Christians alone love those who hate them. And therefore, right, Christians then he was defending were the best citizens that Rome could ever ask for. They would be obedient. They would be submissive to the laws because they knew God put them in place. And that's even during times of persecution. And so submission reveals our confidence in the Almighty God. It reveals our trust that God is the one that is over all, meaning that we will not be swayed when things don't go our way in an election or whatever else, because we know God put those people in place. And a rebellious heart toward those earthly authorities that tries to push against them, it reveals a lack of trust in the Lord, the one who is reigning over all and is the one in control, because once again, God put them in place. And God has a perfect plan. And his perfect plan will maximize the amount of glory that God receives. And on top of that, part of that glory that he receives is us as believers becoming more like Christ. Our submission and our obedience to those authorities, it points to our hope in God and not a hope in man. And that makes our behavior, our attitude, way different than those around us who find their hope in people and policies. And then Paul continues, right? He also says to the church in Crete that they need to be ready for every good work. That there are constant, constant opportunities in our lives and in their lives to do good. We see that Paul, or Paul continues to use good works throughout Titus, implying the acts of a believer, caring for those in need, coming alongside them, encouraging one another, emphasizing the truth of the gospel, all of these different things. But with the opportunity to do good, there's also the opportunity for us to sin, for us to rebel against God and his instructions. And we see, especially when it comes to dealing with people that might be difficult in our lives. And Paul goes on to share how we really should treat others, right? He says, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people, right? We cannot be the ones that speak evil. We cannot be the ones that spread lies and gossip about other people in our lives. That cannot be us. We shouldn't be the one at the family gathering or the one in our friend group who is always stirring up controversy or spreading lies or gossip about others. When we enter into a room, we should be the one that allows people to have a sigh of relief because they know we're going to bring peace, that we are going to be gentle that when there are times of tension in relationship, that people can trust that we're going to try and seek out peace there rather than rivalry or cause further conflict. 
as we seek to imitate the peacemaker, the true peacemaker, Jesus Christ, who reconciled us to God. And we see that we are to show perfect courtesy. And that can be understood as us just practicing humility, right? Not seeing ourselves as better than others as we serve them or try and spend time with them. Because when we interact with people, whether that's people in the church or those in the world, sometimes we can be tempted to feel pretty good about ourselves if we're truly following God's scripture. But notice what Paul writes in verse 3. He looks back at our lives. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. So it's very important that we must remember what God has saved us from. We must remember how God has delivered us and what we used to be like. That description in verse 3, it's, Paul is describing those who are part of the world. And notice that this description, all of these actions and activities are the direct opposite of what we see the Christian is to do in verses 1 and 2. And if that's the case, our lives, when we live among people of the world, should look drastically different. They should be able to tell that there's a difference. And we see that Paul's first description of the non-believer is foolish. And that's not to downplay them or elevate the Christian at all. But when the truth of Scripture is revealed and applied in our lives, when we start to follow God's commands and the laws that he has for us, we start to realize, wow, there really is a plan. There really is truth to this life, and this is found only in God. But then when we look elsewhere to the world where people are trying to grasp truth from all these different places, we see how foolish it really is because they don't have the truth of Scripture. They're trying to find that truth elsewhere. A philosopher named Richard Rorty, he famously said, truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with saying. Truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with saying. And he passed away in 2007. So he hasn't seen that come to fruition as we live today. Because that's where I believe our culture is. Because you have all these countless narratives that are trying to compete for the truth People, as it says in verse 3, right, they're slaves to their passions and pleasures. People are slaves to their emotions and allowing that to be what is truth in their life, guiding them in all of their decisions. We see that people are being rebellious towards authority in their life, failing to trust them. We see that people are using violence to try and get their way. And, and people are seeking what they want rather than what's good for the whole. People aren't practicing being gentle. As, as Virginia talked about, people are ending lives in the womb when it's not convenient for them or it's not in their timing. We see all of this playing out. And we got to remember, verse 3, Paul is describing people from nearly 2,000 years ago on an island in the Mediterranean. And it still lines up with the world today that that sin is still rampant, that there's nothing really new under the sun. That, and it can be so easy for us as believers to try and take an us versus them approach to the world and see the world as hostile and the enemy and all of this. And when we adopt that mindset, oftentimes we fail to love them. 
because we see that they're described as foolish. It's not that they're described necessarily as people that are extremely evil. They're, they're unaware of the truth. We need to be practicing empathy. Because what did Jesus say about our enemies, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So no matter how you look at it, we are called to love them. There's no other option for us as believers. When people hurt us, we ought to speak peace. We ought to be gentle in our response. And when people try and walk all over us and take advantage of us, we don't have to try and one-up them or get back at them. We need to be practicing humility. We know our worth. God has proclaimed that, that we are sons and daughters of God. We don't have to try and prove ourselves to other people. And these interactions that we have, they're opportunities, they're chances for us to reflect Christ in our behavior, right? And show the impact of the gospel in our lives. Our acts testify to God's character and reveals it to the world. Yet, Paul doesn't just remind Titus of what we were saved from, but how we've been saved as well. If you look at verses 4 through 7, there's a beautiful description of the gospel. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Paul's incredible, beautiful description of the gospel here, it shows how little work we really have in our salvation, right? He brings all of the praise, all of the attention, all of the glory to Christ and the triune God. Therefore, like, our love for Jesus, it, it ought to prompt us to witness. Our love for Jesus, it should prompt us to witness. It should push us further along. Because in verse 4, we see that not only does Jesus express kindness to us, but his goodness. And that word also can mean a love for mankind. Right? And that, it comes from the word philanthropia, which we get philanthropy. And, but we see this description of Jesus, that he had a love for mankind. Even when we are in that sinless, sinful, foolish state, he extends mercy. He extended grace and offered salvation. It has nothing to do with our abilities. We can't, we, our righteous living was nothing. We could do nothing at all outside of Christ. It starts with Christ alone. Because in verse 5, it shows us, right? And he saved us. We, could, we did nothing at all. He saved us according to his mercy. And how did he do that? By taking our place on the cross for our sins. When we rightfully deserved that punishment. And not only that, right? Overcoming death by his resurrection. And through that, now we are able to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and be able to experience the beautiful, beautiful act of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which we see in verse 5. And 
some people might, might be tempted to think that that washing is talking about baptism. And, and that's not the case. First off, there's a different u- word that's used for baptism throughout the New Testament. But also, baptism does not bring about salvation. This act is done exclusively by the Holy Spirit. It's a cleansing that is internal. And it has eternal implications in our lives, right? Because we become clean from our sin. And it leads to that regeneration, that renewal, meaning that we're brought into new life in Christ. And then look at verse 6. God's not hesitant in giving us the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not trying to portion out the Holy Spirit and only giving us portions, right? The Holy Spirit is poured out richly in our lives, in absolute abundance. How can that be the case? Well, the Holy Spirit is the eternal God. There's no limit, right? It's like the, a waterfall being poured out. A waterfall is continuous. It is, it is overwhelming. It is powerful. That is the Holy Spirit. We can constantly lean into the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is given generously to every single believer. That is an amazing gift, And as we're washed and made new by the Holy Spirit, we see in verse 7 another wonderful gift that we are justified by his grace. Right? We are viewed as clean. We are viewed as righteous by God. We are no longer those people from verse 3. We're no longer living that sinful lifestyle through Jesus' death and his resurrection and the washing of the Holy Spirit. We are made upright. We are made righteous before God. And the grace of God continues from there, right? It's it's really on display in these verses. Verse 7, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So not only are we justified, we are welcomed into the family of God. Sons and daughters of God to receive eternal life. That is our inheritance. That can never be taken away from us. Do you dwell upon that truth? What has been offered and given to us, it is mind-blowing. It ought to change the way that we behave. It ought to change the way that we approach our relationship with God. It needs to change how we approach our relationships with God other people. Because the better that we understand the gospel and we know God, the more we will want to live for God and have a desire to share the gospel. God is is being that the more you get to know him, the more you're drawn in. But we all know we've had those experiences where we meet someone that we admire. Maybe it's an artist or uh, maybe an athlete or a teacher or professor or whatever else. And we've heard great things and we're so excited to meet them. And we finally meet them and then we are disappointed. It's the whole never meet your heroes thing where we are just, just saddened by it. And we, we really aren't excited when they talk about things or we don't really support them as much anymore now that we've finally met them. But then there are those other people where you get to know them and all you want to do is support them more. And you want to rally behind them like, oh, I'm going to buy all their albums or I'm going to buy a jersey or I'm going to support them when they have a performance or they're teaching or whatever else. There's been this really strange phenomenon that's been taking place in Detroit And it is Dan Campbell, the head coach of the Detroit Lions. He 
has been able to change the culture of the Detroit Lions in that locker room. People, <laughs> it's, it's shocking because people now are willing to take pay cuts to stay on the Detroit Lions. That's unheard of. That's insane. People are deciding not to take head coaching jobs to stay on the Detroit Lions underneath Dan Campbell. That's crazy. People in the interviews are like, I'm willing to run through a brick wall for Dan Campbell. Why? He's just a person, right? But they have, they trust his vision. They trust his direction. They know, they they rally behind what he has to say. But what about Jesus? Are we willing to rally behind him? Because the more we get to know Jesus, the more time we spend studying scripture, the more time we spend in prayer, the more time that we spend in worship, our love for Christ can only grow. And that ought to motivate us to want to obey his commandments, to go out and share the gospel and make his name known for other people to hear that good news. Right? It's the love and it's the hope of God that leads and drives people to leave their homes and go across the globe to go share the gospel with uh, people groups that have never heard of Jesus, willing to risk their lives because Christ laid down his, and he is absolutely worth it. It's Christ's example of sacrifice that we need to imitate in our lives, that we need to follow. And a great way that we can do that is through good works that we see in verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We see that Paul reiterates the importance of the gospel, that good news that he had just shared beautifully in verses 4 through 7 to Timothy. And he says, you need to insist on this truth, on this fact, that you need to continually be bringing attention to this message, this good news. Why? Well, one reason, we see that there were false teachers that were teaching otherwise, but we see that specifically this is directed towards believers, right? I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, Christians, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And what does it mean to have good works? Well, that word good there is not just simply like, oh, that's good. It means it's beautiful. It's winsome. It's convincing. It draws you in. It's that type of good. It's like you being at a museum and you see a beautiful piece of art across the hall and you're like, what is that? And you walk over to admire it. You're drawn in by it. And we are to have and practice winsome acts. Not to convince others that we're better than them or that we're good people, but to direct them to God. To direct them to the gospel and the work that it has had in our lives. Our witness is winsome. We are practicing good works. When we are following after God in our lives, our witness is winsome. It is beautiful. It draws people in. Not because of us, but because we're imitating God. We can direct them to the source. And when we as believers, we commit 
to doing good works, whether that's in our conduct or our treatment of others or our ability to care for those who are in need, whatever it may be, we see that it's described as being excellent and profitable for people, that it has benefit for all people, right? Of course, this includes meeting people's emotional or physical or financial or mental needs, but ultimately it's to expose them to the gospel, to the good news. That is what is truly profitable. Jesus in Matthew 5, 16, he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So why are we doing those good works? It's for God to receive the glory. Bottom line, that's it. It's for people in the world to actually notice in our lives there's something different. And they can't attribute it to, oh, you're on a new diet, that's why you're behaving better. Or you, you have a good family, that's why you're able to be so cheerful all the time. Or you had a really good upbringing. You have a comfortable job. No, no, no. The only thing that they can attribute our good works and our behavior to is our Father in heaven. And then it's beautiful that it's, they give glory to the Father through that. That this is an opportunity for someone to get to know God. But, I mean, sometimes, though, we hit these seasons in our lives where we'd rather watch than engage that we're, 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 we sit back for a little bit. Maybe we're taking a break, but that break becomes our lifestyle and we just kind of hang out there. Have you ever seen one of those videos on the internet where someone's filming something absolutely crazy? Maybe it's an emergency or someone's being attacked by an animal or there's a fight or whatever else. It can be any of those categories. And someone's filming it and no one's stepping in to help the person. They aren't putting down the phone and reaching in to go and be a part of that situation to help them out. Why do people do that? It's called the bystander effect. Bystander, not standard, excuse me. But it's a phenomenon where people in a group, when there's a group of people observing an event where someone's in need or there's an emergency, no one engages. They all just watch it. And every, even though they're witnesses to the event and they could do something, people watch rather than help. Or nowadays, they don't just watch, they film it, right? A common theory of why that takes place is very, very simple. It's the assumption, oh, someone else is going to step in and help. Someone else is going to do that. And if everyone thinks that someone else is going to step in, nothing's going to happen. No one is going to save that individual or intercede or take care of whatever is happening there. And that can be the same with our lives. We think, oh, someone else will do it. Someone else will take care of that person. Someone else will share the gospel with them down the line. Don't pass it off. We've all been called to serve. We've all been called to share the gospel, to make disciples. We've all been share, or, or called to share and do good works with people. And there are plenty of wonderful opportunities at our church to do good work alongside fellow believers. One of those today we just saw, CareNet. CareNet is a wonderful ministry that you can come alongside financially, but also volunteer. 
Come alongside those young mothers. Come alongside those fathers. They need men at CareNet too. There are also other ministries that kind of fall in line with sanctity of human life. Every second Saturday of the month, we have a group from our church that goes to the Evergreen, Evergreen Rehabilitation Center. And they go there, and we have someone that will lead worship, and we sing a few hymns, and then teaches, and does a small devotional, and then we just engage with the people there. And it's a beautiful thing, because some of those people, they don't have any visitors. Their family doesn't come and visit them at all. And we're able to be the love of Christ and provide encouragement for them. And on top of that, the staff there, people are wheeling these people into the room to hear the message because they want to be there. But on top of that, we're sharing the gospel with those staff there as well. Why are these people coming on their Saturday to talk to people that they don't even know who are likely going to forget them next time they come to visit? You know, it's one of those wonderful opportunities for us to share the gospel. Another th opportunity that we have, in, and we have a table in the back for this as well, is our refugee ministry. God is bringing the world to Detroit. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, that there are Syrian refugees coming, there are now Ukrainian refugees coming, and they need our help. And you can help volunteer to help a family get acclimated to the United States, provide help and needs and all of those things for them. And we need people, five to ten people, to come alongside each of these families, to come alongside them and not only just share and do good works for them, but be able to share the gospel with them. It's, there, there are countless different serving opportunities that we have in our lives. And if we're focused on devoting ourselves to good works, we aren't going to have the time to create division or the other things that Paul warns about in verses 9 through 11. And these might seem like a downer. It's a weird way to end a service about going is talking about false teachers and things, but it's so important. It's so significant for how we share our faith. Verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. As I mentioned earlier, Crete's churches, they had a serious problem with false teachers. They were promoting a lot of strange Jewish myths, specifically. That's where we have the mention of these genealogies and quarrels about the law. It's talking about the Torah, all of that taking place. They were adding or subtracting from the true gospel, which is corrupting it. And Paul calls these teachings unprofitable and worthless. But in verse 8, how did he describe good works? Excellent and profitable. The direct opposite, right? So these good works that we are doing, they testify of the one true God. Even if there are false teachings or anything taking place, if we are living lives that are good works, that are focused and caring and helping others, people will see that and notice that and be open to hearing your gospel, which is the true gospel. And those, though, who continue to stir up division, those who are placing their teachings or their views or their opinions over Scripture and putting those in place, we see that it's the three strikes and you're out approach. Now, 
That might seem like we aren't offering them grace, but this is really an act of love. Think about it, because this is a serious response to a serious problem. Anything that is more or less than the true gospel is no longer the gospel. It jeopardizes people from truly knowing Jesus as Scripture describes him, as we know him here at Highland Park. Because truth that is altered in any way is no longer the truth. And we need to be vigilant as believers, making sure that our source is Scripture, that we're seeking that. We need to be holding each other accountable to make sure that we're pursuing after the truth of Scripture and allowing that to be reflected in our words and our actions as we go out and share the good news, proclaiming that truth, the only truth, in our social circles, in our communities. Because if you're tired of people trying to tell you what Christians believe or trying to tell you what you believe— then we need to be showing it to them. Our acts testify of God's character. It reveals them his love, his mercy, and we can direct them to that source. If we are taking time in scripture and in prayer, that love for Jesus, it shouldn't leave us just sitting there and enjoying it and dwelling within it. We ought to go. We ought to witness and share that same love that we're experiencing with others so that they can get to know Jesus, their Savior. And finally, our witness is winsome. Don't, don't downplay doing good acts and caring for others and seeking to uh, help those that are in need. People are drawn to that, especially in our world. Remember the description in verse 3, people are foolish, they're struggling, they're trying to find truth in places. And we have that truth. We need to be sympathetic. We need to be coming alongside those people and directing them to the source of the love that we're sharing with them, which is God. We must devote ourselves to good works because our entire lives are our testimony. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for such a convicting yet encouraging passage that you have provided with us in Scripture. I just thank you, Lord, for uh, revealing the truth to us, that we're able to no longer be blind and living in our sin, but we have been forgiven by you. I pray, Lord, that we are able to have the boldness and the confidence to share with those and our friends and our families that are lost. Help us to find those blind spots in our life where our actions aren't lining up with your attributes, who you truly are. Help convict us of that, God. Help us to have accountability with one another to help us have a better understanding of your gospel. Be able to share that truth with others as we go out today. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.